welcome to the Emotional Work Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the human condition, having conversations that you might not necessarily expect. Now, already on this podcast, we've looked at organizational change. That was with a lady called Julie Driver, and that was on episode 33. Um, but it's such an important area that I wanted to take a look at it from a different perspective. Now, similarly, we've also looked at neuroscience before uh, with Matt Wall, who was a guest on episode number nine, way, way back in the early days of the podcast. Um, and um, our guest today is both a practitioner and an author. So, and, and in her most recent book, or the most recent edition of her book, she brings together um, the neuroscience of organizational change. Um, and so I was particularly interested then to get our guest on today because she has those two different kind of perspectives. Um, and even though we've looked at them separately, I thought might be really nice for, for you, fair listener, um, is for us to bring them together into one. So enough of my um, waffling on, let's get our guest on the air. So I'd like to welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast, Hilary Scarlett. Hello, Hilary. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's good to be here. That is wonderful. I'm so pleased that you can be here as well. I'm really excited about uh, about where we're going to go and what we're going to look at today. Now, as um, as we as we spoke kind of off air beforehand, um, the Emotional Podcast has a, a little sort of a unique thing that it does, um, where I ask each of our guests an unexpected yet innocuous question right at the start of the podcast. Um, so, uh, and, and for for this question, I just want to preface it, I suppose, with you can interpret the word best in any which way that you like. So you can interpret the word okay. best in this question which way you like okay what's the best thing that you've done in the rain in the rain oh i think swimming in the sea in the rain is good actually i remember going swimming in the sea and that that's something really nice about being in water and then water coming down on top of you so i think i think that's 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 what comes to mind wow so you're an open water swimmer then no, no just just in the sea but i, but I do okay. love swimming in the sea Fab. I've never, so I, I swam, properly swam in the sea for the first time last week. So when I say properly, like I've done it with my kids before. Right. I actually, you know, uh, so you, we know when you go in the sea and you just mess around and stuff. Yes. But I actually went for a proper swim in the sea. It was in the North Sea and it was really Wow. Tr- it was really cold. Um, <laughs> But it was really fun, and I, I wasn't expecting it to be anywhere near as much fun as it as it actually was. I only managed about twenty minutes before I thought I'm getting a bit cold. I should probably get out now. Um, but yeah, no, I, but yeah. I can imagine I can imagine that being fun in the rain actually. Yeah, yes, yeah, because you're you're kind of wet already. So water from above, yes, water below. It's 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 good. It's good. Yeah. Well, North Sea. I'm very impressed. That's that's uh, that's very brave. Thank you. Thank you. I did have a, a, a just to complete the, the 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 complete the image. I did have a bright pink hat sun, uh, swim hat on, nice. um, <laughs> partly for visibility so that people could see me. All right. Yeah. Um, but also to just to try and keep my head warm a little bit. And I had these. Um, and then a friend of mine who I was swimming with lent me these um, kind of wetsuit type um, shoes. So mm. it's kind of like, you know, just, yeah, or wetsuit socks maybe. Um, so I wasn't even in a wetsuit. I was just in, wow. in swimming shorts, bright pink hat, and the kind of wetsuit socks. slash sock thing. <laughs> um, just to complete the image. Complete the image, yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I was going through all my heads right now. <laughs> so, so I think for me, um, uh, it's, it's a similar thing and it's exercise. So one thing I really enjoyed was running in the rain. I, I don't, I don't, for, for long time listeners of the podcast, they'll know the history behind why I don't run anymore, but, um, but I don't, I, I can't run anymore, unfortunately, but I used to really enjoy running in the rain. Mm. You know, so if I could choose between, um, 
And not, not when it's uh, again. I guess there's kind of degrees, isn't there? So not when it's freezing cold and lashing down, but actually running running through a shower that helps keep you cool. I always quite enjoyed that. I thought that was yes, yeah. Um, I thought that's quite a nice thing to do. Yes, no, absolutely. And actually, as as I start thinking about now, also I think cliff top walks when when there's, when there's quite a rough sea and a storm and there's raining, something very dramatic about that too. That's I think that's another another good experience. Mm, definitely. Oh, and you give me my, my you give me my link into the uh, into the podcast proper as well. Then, so with the um, with yeah, so you, you said about the, if it's a bit if it's a bit windy, um, and the sea's a bit stormy, mm-hmm. and oh, what was the word you used? You didn't say scary. What did you say? Dramatic. Yes. Dramatic. Yes. So organisational change that can be quite dramatic. Then. Um. So, what got you interested into? Um, kind of organisational change and then the neuroscience link into that. Where did that interest come from for you? Where, where did all that come from? Um, I guess originally, way back when, I worked in um, kind of marketing and advertising and, and that form of communication. And in a way, I just fell into into communication change management. I was a headhunted way back um, when into a management consultancy who at that point there wasn't much going on in the world of internal comms and change mm. and they wanted people with I guess the external communication skills and I've also done quite a lot of market research type stuff so measurement skills to bring to begin to bring that knowledge internally in, into organizations because I guess that was a point at which people were beginning to realize that employees who are communicated with who are, in, who are engaged in some way are likely to be more productive so I guess I kind of fell into it really in terms of change management but then um absolutely loved it in that I guess the relationship to an organization employee feels so much more profound in some ways than the one perhaps between consumer and organization um, because it works on so many different levels so I worked in organizational change um, for many years um, mergers acquisitions restructuring all sorts of all sorts of things Um, and my interest in neuroscience, um, I came across an article about 10 years ago or so um, written by a psychiatrist saying we can now understand enough about the human brain to apply that knowledge to the real world and to the world of work. Mm. And I thought that's interesting. Perhaps if we can bring a bit more science to what we do, a bit more evidence to what we do in terms of organisational change, um, that would be really interesting. Um, so I went up originally and studied with neuroscientists in the States and um, more recently over the last four and a half years I've worked with neuroscientists, um, some at University College London here in the UK and still some in the States as well. Okay. Um, and what sort of things have you, so what sort of things have you been working on with them then? So with some of those neuroscientists over in America or at um, uh, UCL. What sort of things have you been working on with them? Well, I guess I guess well, how I use it. I mean, part of me initially it was me just learning from them. So initially it was it was because um, I'm not a neuroscientist by by background at all. So initially it was about learning, yeah. learning about the brain, um, and um, learning about how that. Then thinking about how do I make that relevant to organisations, and so in a way, how I work with them, I guess, is is um, me kind of going and saying, look, I'm really interested in this particular area. Um, tell me more about it, be it about stress management, um, be it about um, relationships at work, what do we know, what do we know from a brain perspective, mm. and, and that's how I kind of work with them. So I guess I kind of go in and say, this is what I'm really interested in, um, what, what do we know, and what do we not yet know as well? I think it's really important with neuroscience to be clear about that. And um, 
so I, so that, that I find that really interesting then in that um, and and I, I risk now kind of putting labels on things that might be inappropriate so I'm, I'm very up for you correcting me <laughs> okay. so are, are you kind of that are you trying to are you building a bridge then between the world of, of kind of neuroscience and research that happens in universities and the workplace yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of see, I kind of see my role as as is as, as taking the the work they do um, out of the lab and bringing it into the workplace and making it really practical. Because my background, obviously, is is working in organisations with organisations yeah. yeah. for, for many years. So I guess I, so I can, and because in a way, I'm not a neuroscientist by background I can kind of go in and ask the dumb question and I kind of think well if I get it then hopefully that means I can then interpret it so other people can get it too so um, yeah so I think that word of the you know being a bridge absolutely that, that is how I see my role and, and out of curiosity is it, is it a two-way bridge so do you do you get to take what you um what you learn or what you experience in the workplace and take that back in to the neuroscientists that you work that you work with, either at University College London or, or or in the states, does it feed back in that way as well, or does it tend to just come out? It, it, it did actually. Actually, at the at the original book launch, um, somebody asked a really good question. Somebody somebody asked me the questions that they said. So, Hillary, you've learned a lot from the neuroscientists. What have they learned from you? And mm-hmm. some of them were in the room, and one of them said, "Well, what we learn from Hillary is when she comes in, she's asking, in a sense, what the real world is interested in, because it's very easy, I think, in in, in labs and universities to get interested in certain areas. But they say it's actually quite refreshing to have somebody coming in from that very practical world of work." Um, talk about this is what people are interested in this is what people need so I think it, I think they were grateful for that perspective and also they're intrigued they're, they're quite intrigued some about how how do you, how do you make that terribly complex stuff into stuff that's accessible and useful for busy leaders and managers um, so they're, they're, they're interested in that side too I also think um, you know especially working with UCL I think um, good on them they are very interested and concerned that their work is relevant and useful to, to the world one of them said a lovely thing to me once said well as a professor at ucl i'm paid to be here by the british taxpayer if 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 you're taking my work out and making uk plc function better that's that that's great so i think i think as a, so a very nice sense of, of mutual reciprocity there so uh, yeah mm, okay and um one of the other things that I, that I get interested in, and uh, yeah, I don't want to go there now. I do, I think, um, is um, kind of myths and misconceptions. Um, and, and the reason the the conversation sort of triggered that thought, and normally it's one of the questions that I ask right at the end of the podcast. You know, are there any kind of myths or misconceptions that that you want to put the, that you want to put to bed? But I guess that the fact that we've already started talking about how. Um, you're, what you're trying to do is to find out you're, you're asking the questions that people in the workplace are asking um, are there any questions yeah so yeah and then I wondered sorry speaking very poorly today and then I wondered if you've asked questions that the neuroscientists have gone oh no no that's not a thing you know that's, that's actually there's there's not there's not as much evidence for that type thing so I wondered are there any myths or misconceptions around neuroscience that you've experienced either from the workplace or that that you've had to kind of address or uh, or put right in that way um an interesting question i think um 
I, th I think partly is, is the staying humble in a sense. There's, there's the, the neuroscience, I think, is a really exciting area, but there is still a lot we don't know. Mm. And I think particularly in the areas of advertising and marketing, we need to be quite cautious because I get, I get a sense that our agency is setting up, um, you know, telling people, you know, we can put them into our fMRI scanner and play them your ad and see from how their brain responds, whether they're going to buy your product or not. No, we can't. So I think it's about being cautious. And I think, um, uh, especially looking at things in the popular press about what's there, I guess the whole right brain, left brain, I mean, it's a useful in some ways as a concept, but the brain doesn't really work like that. It's much more about networks. So I think things like that we need to be careful about. Um, but I think, I think one of the really good news is, is about the brain's ability to um, keep on learning through life. I think a lot of us kind of think, oh, you know, once I've got to 30, 40, 50, that's kind of it. Um, but the good news is from the world of neuroscience um, is how our brains are capable of learning well into older age and not only can they but we should do um this whole thing of neuro neuroplasticity so so i think so i think some really good news um i also think um because one of my other message people is about you know we've, we've probably got more control over our brains than than we realize that i think if we understand them there are choices we can make um so that's i think that's probably another area that's, that's a, a positive message but one that people perhaps don't quite realize Okay, so um, I'll come back to that one in a moment. Oh. I think that, that'll be a useful. Um, that'll certainly be a useful area to explore some more. Um, what uh, just just in case um, uh, it would help our uh, the listener then neuroplasticity. How would you? Do, how would, what would kind of be your working definition of neuroplasticity? So neuroplasticity is this ability of the brain to change and restructure, and indeed our brains are doing it all the time. Every every thing that we remember, every conversation that slightly changes, that slightly changes the, the structure of the brain, creates a new series of, of connections between neurons. But neuroplasticity is a, it is this ability of the brain to to restructure, to change um, that we kind of used to think pretty much once you hit 25 that was kind of it the brain didn't improve in any way that was it, it yeah. was, if anything it was downhill all the way into old age over the age of 25 our eyesight doesn't get any better okay. yeah. but other parts of the brain can can absolutely um change and, and and restructure um and i think this is really good news for all of us and in fact neuroscientists say um perhaps one of the reasons why our brains do tend to slow down in older ages is because we don't perhaps quite challenge or, or stretch them in the same way we did when we were at school or college or university so there's lots of thinking now about if, if you really want to keep your brain agile and active and, and young then get out there and learn something difficult because we we not only can we do it but they think it's good for the brain too and, and might even be protective um in in older age yeah, because there was a big kind of a there was a big growth. Growth, I don't know if growth is the right word, um, around Sudoku, wasn't there? What was that? I don't know, ten years ago or something like that. As a you know, Sudoku keeps your brain young type thing. Um, but I'm, I'm less I'm, I'm less sure from memory, which you know, there's lots of there's lots of brain yeah. things all mixed together yeah. and so on. Um, whether actually the evidence backs that up, I don't think it did. No, I mean, again, it's still an emerging field, but I think on the whole, the research into if you do a lot of Sudoku, your brain tends to get better at doing Sudoku, but does it actually transfer into other yeah. areas? Not, not necessarily. Um, and in a way, I think it's, it, but, but there are, I know some of the neuroscience I work with are, are working on things like brain training apps and, and think there might be something in that. Um, 
but certainly the neuroscience that I work with say it's about learning something really hard. That's what's good. So it is about learning a, a musical instrument, learning a foreign language. It, it, it's those kind of things, things that really challenge your brain that you have to kind of actively get involved with and think about. So that's the kind of stuff that's really useful to sort of challenge, stretch, stretch the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and I guess in, in organizations, I kind of say to people, so if, you know, if, if I think we often do find change, challenging but maybe there's a positive message in there if we are finding new ways of doing things that work difficult or or awkward or say particularly challenging maybe there's a message about well good because if it's challenging your brain um maybe that's a good thing um because one of the things we have to stay aware of is that our brains tend to like habits our brains tend to like doing things in the same old way um so actually challenging them at work getting to learn new things could could be good for us Okay. And, and <clears throat> one of the other things about me is I'm a bit of a linguist. Right. So when when you mentioned just there a phrase like um, brains like habits, um, I go, oh, do they though? Is that, you know, is, is that generalization? Um, uh, if I can do so many, if I can do a, a soft, you know, a G and a J, are those generalizations justifiable? You know, is it is it as simple as um, uh, brains like habit, or is it a bit more complex than that? Well, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have it is as simple as that. Um, that. On the whole, what our brains want to do is because because learning new things takes up quite a lot of mental energy. On the whole, what I think our brains want to do is push things into being habits. So I guess things like if you think about when you learn to drive a car and how um, initially you really have to concentrate and if you're anything like me I remember as a 17 18 year old learning to drive and I couldn't hold a conversation in the car and drive at the same time it took so much of my focus to drive that car change that gear um, but now hopefully I could happily hold a conversation and, 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 and drive the car so that's an example of things turning into, into it's shifting into habits that, that learning how to how to drive that the brain wants to do that because it's so to speak, it kind of frees up by pushing things into habits, into non-conscious thinking. It kind of frees up the brain to think about more interesting things. So habits are useful to the brain. And so the brain will quickly kind of push things into habits if it can. Um, so because neuroplasticity, in a way, what neuroplasticity is all about is the brain kind of thinking to itself, if you're going to keep doing this thing, whatever it is, I will make it easier for you and less effortful for you by making tighter connections between brain cells and more connections so those things become easier for you so um learning to drive a car becomes much easier um learning to use a new system at work becomes much easier um so on the whole that's what our our brains want to do they, they want to form habits in that sense i mean there are other things where you could question it things like novelty is also attractive to the brain but that's that's yeah another issue uh, yeah and, and yes you know, and and then you get into you know other things that are attractive. You know, I say attractive to the brain, other things that um you know that will that that can take any kind of that capacity up. You know, so where you look at that that executive kind of control area. Yeah. You know, with you know, what for what kind of better phrase used to be kind of that that the the, the executive control which looks at that bridge between short term memory and long term memory and, and working memory then included within that as well. Then you're right. You know, the more habits there are 
the easier yeah. it is the, the the more i can process at the same time the more things that i can i can be attentive to because i can automate some of those things or, yes and we, and we have very limited working memory they think there's probably about four things we can kind of keep in, in working memory at any one time so one is why the brain wants to push things into that non-conscious thinking and i think and i think the message for all of us in terms of a bit about habits is i do think we've got to reflect at work or wherever, am I doing this thing in a certain way because that's the best way of doing it? Or am I doing it in a way, this way, because I've always done it that way? Because as a bit of our brains will say, just keep doing it the same old way. That takes less mental effort. It's, it's mm. easier for you to do it. So that's why I think we need to be conscious about, about habits because the good news about neuroplasticity is, is this ability for the brain to form these connections, make things easier for us, less effortful for us, less conscious thinking about driving that car or whatever it might be. The downside is that once neuroplasticity has done its work, so to speak, it's mm. very hard to change that set of connections. But once you've got a habit, it's very hard to shift the brain from from that habit in fact it's very hard just to stop a habit on the whole it's easier to try and replace that habit um with it with a, another more constructive one one that we want perhaps yeah so you've sort of given me a really nice segue into one of the questions i was going to ask in a bit later on which was um bringing together organizational change bringing together the you know we talked about kind of organizational change and habits then because and, and there's a risk that I sound like I'm uh, insulting organizational change practitioners out there. And I suppose in a way I am in that there, there are a lot of organizational change practitioners that exist that, that have a, have a habit or a process that they follow. So in something as I would argue, because I'm biased, something as emotive as organizational change if we're very process driven with it because that's the habits we've got into oh mm. I'm, I'm at this point in cotters or i'm at this point in whatever therefore i need to um we we go in we go on by you know, we follow the scripts that we've that, that we've um learned over time mm. rather than you know approaching it in the reflective way that you've just you know you're articulating just now Yes, and people, yes, absolutely. All of us, you know, we, we have, as you say, we have our habits, we have our ways of doing things. We're very comfortable with those. Also, with the brain, you know, the more you keep practicing those kind of habits, using those parts of the brain, that process, the more that brain part of the brain gets um, experienced and, and able to do that. So, um, you're absolutely right. I think it's against an area where we've all got to kind of open ourselves up to are there other processes I should be looking at? Are there other ways of doing it? And because once we're in that habit, it becomes quite hard to see the world differently too and it takes quite hard to step back and 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 challenge ourselves to do things differently mm. okay so so that's one of the links then that we've uh, that we've established between neuroscience and organizational change is the neuroplasticity bit is good because that mm. means that we can learn new things it can also be a risk that we need to you know be aware of and look out for because we don't want to get ourselves stuck in a habit and not be reflecting on what it is that we're doing what are the what, what are the other links that, or what's, what are some of the other links that you found between um, neuroscience and organizational change yeah well, I think um, one of the things about about our, our brains is that on the whole our brains um, they're constantly subconsciously trying to predict and make meaning for us because um, our brains think so to speak that if they can predict about what might be coming up they can better protect us and for the brain it's all about survival i think if we remember that that's the keeping the brain just wants us to make it through the day so it's all about survival so one of the things the brain wants to be able to do and is very good at on the whole is, is about trying to predict what's coming coming up trying to make meaning okay. um so because the brain feels if it can predict it can protect us because if we go back to 
the savannah, if you're we, when we were out there on the savannah, if our brains could predict that rustling the undergrowth might be a snake, then our brains a better place to protect us from from that snake so our brains are constantly trying to predict make meaning one of the things that organizational change takes away from us very often is that ability to predict i don't know what's coming up there's uncertainty our brains don't like uncertainty they find it very difficult i, I think any change practitioner any one of us just needs to be aware of that that uncertainty is difficult for the brain it it, it, it doesn't like that um i think Choice is also hugely important for the brain to have that sense that I've got a bit of choice, a bit of control is very important to the brain. And again, kind of going back to Savannah, because if our brains felt we had some control of what's going on, we're more likely to survive, we're more likely to make it. So I think very much choice is very important. I was working with a technology team recently in one of the banks and um, and they were quite frustrated about saying, why is it that, you know, people at home will choose their new systems and whatever music systems and whatever and and uh, and love it and very excited about that their music systems whatever it might be but when we get them into work any new technology we all sort of groan and moan and don't want to do it and i say i think well one of the things is choice if we've chosen at home to have that new music system or whatever that's my choice mm. if it's if it's somehow imposed upon us which a lot of organizational change can feel like it is being done um on the whole a bit of us goes i don't want to do it if it's being imposed upon me so i think there's a bit about about um about choice um about about um control is really is really important to brain and about certainty Another key bit, I think, for us to bear in mind when we're going through change is because it is all about survival. What our brains, again, sort of constantly, non-consciously, subconsciously think about is things that might be a threat to our survival or things that might enhance our survival. Mm-hmm. And anything that feels a bit new and uncomfortable on the whole, our brain goes, oh, don't like it. That could be that could be a threat. So our brains are much more attuned and aware of things that might be might be threats to us. Um, and again, uncertainty feels like a threat to the brain. It feels so. Um, we need to be aware of that. And when we, and when we are feeling threatened or are surviving in this kind of survival mode, um, that our brains, because they're still really better designed for the savanna. I think if we get that thought in our heads, our brains really still on the whole are better designed for the savanna than they are for the very sophisticated. sophisticated 21st century workplace mm-hmm. on the whole what our brains do is it, they, they go into flight or fight flock or freeze are actually four modes but flight or fight means blood goes to those parts of the brain that get us ready to run away or to fight and away from this executive center the prefrontal cortex this bit at the front of our brain that's so important in terms of thinking and decision making so when we're in that mode of flight or fight and lots of little things can trigger it it could be your boss not saying good morning to you that that day or an yeah. email that's a bit aggressive it's a bit um it could be a colleague you don't get on with uncertainty lots of little things um trigger this kind of so-called threat state in our brains um and when we have that threat state blood goes away from the prefrontal cortex this bit of the brain that's so important in terms of thinking Hey, there was, there's lots in there that I wanted to ask some more questions on. Um, so I, I want to stick on the threat state for a moment. Um, so part of my interest then is, is it, I guess the clues in the title, emotion at work. Um, now, when, when people use the word threat, typically the, the closest kind of collocation to that, that, that would, you would go for would be fear. Um, now, but I'm less convinced that the threat state that you were describing would only be about fear 
or would it? And I guess that, that's, that, it, that was what I wanted to ask. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess what it's, it, it's, it, this track says about is about, um, uh, I guess, yeah, anything that our brains feel yeah, might be a threat to us. So it could be anything. So it could be, so it could be um, being new on a team, but you know, not quite fitting into the group. I don't quite belong here yet. I can't quite relax with these people. That would create a a a, a threat state. So it's lots of, it's, and it's, it can be quite subtle. It could be we could be conscious of it, but I think I think most of us probably quite a lot of the time are in a bit subtly in a bit of this what I would call threat state. Um, it's even you know driving into work in the morning or going to work in the morning and hot desking. Will I get a desk? Will I not get a desk? Will I get the desk I want? You know, all these little things create what I would. Call this threat state in the brain where say we we, we begin to go blood begins to go, go away from the prefrontal cortex but fear is very close to it i mean threat fear are the emotions that kick in fastest in the brain because they're so important in terms of survival so they tend to be the ones that kick in really quickly okay um and and how would you how would you how would you if at all then map other emotions in in on that then so if you were to look at say anger or if you were to look at so if we go with the with the kind of prototypical um, universals as they're as they're described so or basic emotions sometimes as they're described where you've mm. got anger and you've got fear so you've got anger you've got fear you've got surprise you've got disgust you've got happiness. Um, uh, how, where would you kind of how would they would they map across to the threat state are they slightly different to the threat state how would how would those things how if at all would you link those together and if um, you wouldn't I, then that's fine to say as well um uh, well i think in terms of threat state it, it is it is it is that fear it's that it is it, it's, it's that one there's a little bit of the brain called the amygdala that's part mm-hmm. of what's called the limbic system that's an limbic system is is all about processing emotions and the amygdala is key in terms of processing, processing emotions it's a tiny almond shaped bit, bit of the brain and but it's the bit that responds very quickly um, to things and um, it tends to be associated with with fear so that is the bit that tends to get triggered first um, in, in in our brains because say it's much more important to survival so i think fear threat is the one to be interested in at work in many, in, in many ways i think in the, i think a key thing about all our emotions though is that they are contagious and i think again we need to be aware of that if we're feeling a bit stressed or anxious we're likely to be spreading that emotion around but equally if we are feeling happy or joyful we're likely to be spreading that emotion too so i think they, they do all share that in common yeah absolutely one of the uh, one of the articles that uh, I've been sharing recently across a couple of different social media channels is the there was one piece of research done in terms of the, the number of the 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 number of um, kind of joyful or happy um, contagions that are needed to contrast a um, uh, an angry or a um, or a scared or a fearful uh, contagion. Uh, I'm less convinced on the actual numbers. It's the, the numbers themselves that are being kind of cited, um, but definitely the the emotional contagion is a is is a big part of it. Um, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no. I, I think obviously, I think I think putting numbers would be a very hard thing to do. But absolutely, I think there is this thing about yes, that that. Um, and one of the things I think this whole positive negative. I, I think. Often I say to people in workshops, you know, if I got you to think about um, one email that you got saying, well done, great job, thank you so much. If I got you to think about another email that said, you've really let me down. 
you've really disappointed me, that second email would have a much bigger impact upon us. And that's because of, because of the nice things, in a sense, that get said to us. Our brain, in a way, goes, that's nice, but not important in terms of survival. I'll home in on the one that's negative because that's more important in terms of survival. So I do think in organisations we need to be aware of this, this, this positive-negative balance, that our brains will be more interested in the negative. Um, but all that said, um, I do think, going back to an earlier point, I do think we have got more control over our brains than we realise. And I think there is something about how we set our filters during the working day um, that we can in a sense choose to be glass half empty or glass half full and there's research beginning to come out now suggesting that those people who choose to be glass half full think about the good things about what is a choice that I do this job here things I like about it Mm. that the more we look for the positive the more positives we're likely to see elsewhere and again, one of the things I do in some workshops is just get people to share three good things that have happened so far today, because they're thinking once you begin to look for the good things, you're more likely to see other good things. So this is where I think we do have more choice, more control over our brains than we probably realise. Mm. One of the things that, um, that I do alongside all of the podcast episodes that I record with all of my guests is uh, have a set of what are called show notes. Um, and, and so whilst I do a transcript of each of the episodes from, so that from an accessibility point of view, you know, where, where you know, everybody can kind of get access to, to, to the conversations that happen, uh, what the show notes do is provide kind of that as uh, both a summary of the podcast, but also where to go if you want to find out more type thing. Um, and so when, uh, when any of my guests sort of say to me, oh, there's some research that suggests this or studies that suggest that and my example that I cited earlier on about the, um, you know, the, the proportion of uh, happy or joyful sharing versus other types of sharing um is to put links to either articles or, or the or the studies themselves within the show notes um so if there are any particular resources that we that we pick up on our way through here if it's okay if afterwards you can sort of send me a a, a list of where people could go to find out more and sure. that would be really useful because then i can i can pop all of that in the show yeah. notes if that's okay. yeah no ab- absolutely absolutely um, and i would just say at the back of the in the book that has all got the references too so if people those people want all the references are there but i'm very happy to yeah any key ones you think we've we've raised today i'm very happy to share those yeah so, so I'm, I'm guessing you you know when we were talking about the kind of appreciation and the, the noticing the good things that you were meant you were talking about just now i'm guessing that's a that's a positive psychology kind of um, uh, uh, body of research that sits underneath that would be my guess. Um, but if there's a particular study or studies that you know of, then yeah, that'd be really yeah, we can sure. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of times now, then you've mentioned about sort of the control and choice bits. So mm. you've talked about choice in that the you know the the brain likes to have it, and when it feels like it doesn't have it, then um, that can yeah that can create a uh, a more uh, a less willing. Um, response because you use the, you used the example of technology earlier on that you know people are cho- mm. making the choice about their technology they're more likely to want to go after it whereas if they haven't made a choice then, then that may create more resistance there you go, rather than unwillingness that's a better word resistance um and and, and again right kind of back towards the start of where we were talking you said um, that we have a lot more control than we might think we do so yeah so we have more yeah more we have more control than we realize um, and as we talked about that a couple of times i thought it might be worthwhile to give you the, the opportunity just ex, to expand on that a little bit more. So what, what did you mean by that? We have more control than we might realise. Well, I think I, I think that if we can understand our brains better, and, and I know our brains are hugely complex things and there's still a huge amount we don't yet know, I do think if we just understand a, a few key things about our brains, um, it's really helpful because then we can kind of work with that knowledge 
and that information. And I think we just become much more self-aware too. So going back to this point about threat state, reward state, um, just being aware of when that nasty email comes through or someone's I think rude to you in a meeting, just being aware of that threat state and what it might have done to you, just that awareness um, begins to give us some control on just emotionally reacting to it. Just being aware, I think is, is really helpful. So for me, it's very much, um, you know, helping people to understand their brains better. I think if we understand them, it just gives us that ability to understand what's going on in me, what's going on in, in other people and I think it's once we've got that understanding that awareness then we can kind of choose how we respond to situations better than just reacting to them so I think it's partly to me it's about that understand your brain better and then you can kind of work with that knowledge rather than despite it or in ignorance of it mm. and then there is this bit about priming ourselves um setting filters um that what the brain tends to do is um the brain likes to be right so what we tend to look for is things that prove that i'm right so again it is that feeling if you're walking into a meeting with people who you don't particularly like and you find them difficult and awkward to work with if you go in with that mindset the first moment when one of them starts being a bit difficult or awkward your brain will go see i'm right they are they are difficult awkward people if we walk into that meeting saying no, maybe these are basically good people and here are things we've got in common and they are trying to cooperate, then we're more likely to see the signs of when they are trying to cooperate and what we have got in common. So we can kind of set our filters before we walk into each meeting, each interaction, mm-hmm. um, being aware of, you know, so our brains want to be right, so they try to look for what, what, we, what we expect. But resetting our filters, perhaps just stop, pause before each meeting, saying, I'm going to go into this meeting and be constructive or they are good people, really. All these little things. And and part of the beauty about neuroscience, I think, is little things make a difference. We don't have to wait for huge cultural change in the organisation. I think it's just little things that each of us can do. So before each meeting, start of each working day, during the working day, um, that, that, that give us more control. So a lot of it says about setting filters, priming ourselves, so to speak, um, about how I choose to interact with the world. So I think, I think so to me, it's, it's, it's yeah, partly about understanding the brain, partly about setting filters and, and priming ourselves. And there's also again quite a lot about how we, um, you know, how we can get more out of our brains, how we can. Okay being aware of what distracts our brains, being aware of what's mentally depleting during the working day and okay. you know, the importance of things like exercise for the brain, the importance of getting out into fresh air, the importance of breathing properly, you know, body, brain connection. Uh, you know, breath gives big messages to the brain about whether I'm calm or not. Brain. So lots of ways in which I think we can, we can influence our brains for, for the good if we choose to. Okay. Okay, so so that that thread of, of the conversation then began with um, with a question for me about what have um, kind of what 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 has neuroscience taught you or what what has what have you learned from neuroscience about um, organisational change? So we've talked about control and choice. We've talked about um, kind of filters and, and and priming those filters and how understanding more of the brain can help us with uh, with our awareness but also with about how we might approach things in a um, in a constructive way like you said talking about things like um, the importance of exercise or fresh air or, um, or or breathing so if we can have that 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 broader understanding of what's happening in our brains and that can help us with 
um, with how we engage with the world around us. Um, what are some of the other things that you've learned then? Or, or what, if any, are some of the other things that you've learned from neuroscience that then you use in the organizational change work that you've done? Um, I think, I think uh, well, all the things, I think um, going back to, so much to that bit about choice and control, I think my experience working in a lot of organizations going through change is that um, leaders tend to go to darkened rooms with consultants or whatever, uh, look at all the data, dots of thinking, and emerge with a, a strategy, a plan um, that might be very well thought through and very good. But then they tend to go into broadcast mode and say, here's, you know, here's the challenges, here's our strategy, here's our plan, here are the benefits to the customer, for you, da, da, da. And then wonder why a lot of employees kind of dig their heels in and, mm-hmm. and don't really want to do it. And I think, again, from the world of neuroscience, this point about choice, this point about giving people a chance to reach their own conclusions, their own insights um, about why a certain course of direction might be best than another makes a big difference to us. And I think leaders have to recognise that. They perhaps had that two, three months or however long it might be of being able to kind of look at all the data, look at all the information and reach their own conclusions. I think organisations need to give employees perhaps a bit more time to do that too, just to look at some of the information too, because reaching our own insight, reaching our own conclusion, not being told, it makes a big difference to the brain. Um, We actually... We actually process um, thoughts about goals that we have chosen as opposed to goals that we have been given by other people in a different part of the brain. So it feels that different to to the brain. So there's something to me about giving people, um, yeah, a chance to look at information, reach their own conclusions. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why coaching is coming so much more to the fore because people are recognizing if you've got somebody in a been coached rather than just told what to do um if they again if they've if they've kind of reached their own conclusion about why they want to pursue a certain goal or do a certain thing in a certain way they're going to be much more committed to it than if they're told it by their manager so for me so for me that's one about about giving people a chance to yeah reach their own conclusions Mm. another big one for me that um didn't really strike me until I guess the first time I started running workshops with leaders around their brains and how to lead better by understanding their brains better. It's just the, the very language, um, you mentioned language, the very language of neuroscience, the very language of science is really useful, I think, in many organisations. Um, that, uh, you know, my background is very much organisational change, very much the people side of change is what I've always been interested in. And I think that can be seen as being a bit of a soft area inverted commas yeah okay and, and perhaps a, a matter of opinion as how to how best we lead people through from the very first session i did with a group of bankers around understand your brain a bit better in terms of leading people through change i could just see i'd got their attention away that i hadn't done before because the whole bit about science about evidence i think is hugely appealing to many leaders um because in some ways it takes away what's a matter of opinion, because we can say there are certain things we do know about the brain, that what helps it to focus, what helps it to collaborate better, we know what gets in the way of that. So I think the very language of neuroscience, the very, you know, that that ability to bring evidence and studies, as you mentioned earlier, Mm. um, from the lab into the workplace, I think is really persuasive to a lot of leaders who might otherwise be quite sceptical. Um... Uh, so I, I agree, and and I, I and I want to bring some of that scepticism 
um, with me to the to the question I'm going to ask next. Then, um, and and if and, and I appreciate that this this I guess to a certain degree could be an on the spot putting question, and now I framed it as such. I'm you know I'm letting you know that it could be. Um, so when you said about the goals then, and the goals that are set versus goals that we decide ourselves. And they're processed in different parts of the brain. So that that's led me to two questions. I'll I'd let you know what both of them are and then I can right. come back to them in a minute. So one of those is which parts of the brain does is that in then? Yes, which parts of the brain do the self self-determined goals and which ones do the um, given or or attributed goals? And then secondly, what what does the what evidence is there that it's a good or a bad thing that one gets done in one place and one gets done in another is it not just different right i, I guess the the, the 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 short answer to the first question is that um goals that i have chosen for, for myself um people tend to see more activation in what's called the medial prefrontal cortex okay goals that we've been given by others we see, tend to see more activation in what's called the lateral prefrontal cortex so okay. um and there's various studies around that Good or good or bad? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, good or bad. I guess, but if you want people to be committed to those goals, um, then then you want people to feel that they, they've chosen. You want that to be a medial prefrontal cortex one. I mean, that said, there are times when people just want to be told what to do. I appreciate not everybody all the time. So you know, it's not that all the time it's always good to involve people. So I think there, there's a question there about, you know, when, when is it appropriate to be getting people to set their own goals to choose as opposed to times when people are like, good sake, just tell me what to do and I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think, I think I think there's always that dilemma in organisations, especially with change. You know, where can you let go? Where is it best actually? And especially, you've got to be honest with people too. If you've already made the decision about things, then don't pretend you're involving people because that's not helpful at all. Mm. Um, but I think there is that discussion about how much to people. Where is it? Just just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. As opposed to let me think about it, let me choose. Yeah, that's yeah. That's, I think that's always an interesting question dilemma. Yeah, because. Because I, I then get interested in, um, you know, and for me also, what we're starting to potentially do is is bring two disciplines together, and bring together disciplines of, of psychology and or sociology and or neuroscience mm. together into one. Um, because when you know, if if the if when I choose it's in the medial prefrontal cortex, and if I'm um, being told us in the lateral prefrontal cortex they're, they're, they're both part of the prefrontal cortex then mm, which yeah. is where a lot of the thinking and the you know, that, that's where the cognition work happens and I guess what I'm less familiar with is that if something is in the medial prefrontal cortex does that make it better in inverted commas and my pause and my elocution of better um you kind of touch on doing it in inverted commas than it being in the lateral prefrontal cortex, you know, because the implication is that it's better if it's in the medial when it's choice and it's worse if in the, if it's in the lateral when you're told, but I'm not, I don't necessarily. No. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think, and I, think it's, I think there's just the evidence about where those thoughts are processed, which yes. is one thing and not to be judgmental about that. That's the, the research shows that, that those, those, that's where those goals tend to be processed. Best. I think it's a different thing about what's good or bad. I think the other thing we just do need to be aware of is, is going back to that puffer called the amygdala again, that's, that's, yeah. that's around threat, is sometimes being told what to do or even well-intentioned advice can start to trigger the amygdala because it's somehow saying, 
you think you know better than I do. So even well-intentioned advice can create, can actually activate the amygdala in our brains, which is part of this threat state. So again, we need to be aware of that because if we're triggering a bit of a threat state in our brains, again, that's, that's, that, that tends to be distracting to the brain, um, gets the way of the prefrontal cortex working its best. So, mm. so yeah, and you say yeah. even well-intentioned advice can, can do that, can trigger that, that threat state, trigger the amygdala. So I think it's when the amygdala gets involved in an activator, I think that's when you need to be interested. Yeah, and and one of the things that you know you've you've made me curious about, which I you know I'll, I'll go and do some more reading and research on, is you know, are, are do different are different emotions triggered at different speeds? You know, so it is fear, for example, is that faster than anger or faster than happiness or faster than uh, than others that go with it? Because I'm 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 not aware of I'm just because I'm not aware doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I'm not aware of any research that suggests that one emotion fires quicker than another so that's one uh, yeah. that's one for me to go away and look at um, yeah so it's a bit about fear and threat it tends to be the, the fastest emotion because it's so important in terms of survival um that's why it tends to be the the, the fastest one because yeah so it's important for survivors that tends to be the fastest yeah um so yeah that's why that that of all of them yeah so i can uh, I, I can understand i can certainly you know i can co- cognitively i can understand it from a yeah. why the evolutionary you know what the, so there's the evolutionary link there and therefore that would suggest that you know if we can identify our threats quicker therefore that allows us to um maintain our survival and you said you know you made the link earlier on between you know what, what one of the the brain's functions is to make sure that we survive to the end of the day um so because uh, i was really interested i'm gonna get really nerdy now so one of the one of the pieces that i did some research into for my before my studies then was the orienting response and the kind of the p300 wave that gets picked up on typically on eegs but can get picked up on other um uh, on other scanners as well which, which te- seems to be an orienting response that we then you know when we see something that we give meaning to there is an orienting response that, that goes with that whether that be you know somebody using your name in a busy environment through to yeah. a, a threat that you might perceive through to seeing something that is that is a sudden and unexpected that you weren't necessarily expecting to see it might not be a threat it just could just be something you weren't expecting to see um but there was no differentiation in the speed at which the orienting response would pick up on that particular stimulus um it would it would be the same so yeah like i said just you know it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. this is what i love about getting different guests on because i get to you know i get to to find out new things that i can then go away and um and research and investigate um investigate some more so that's good good stuff um okay uh there was something else that you said a while ago that i wanted to come back to so typically um when the amygdala is mentioned most be- most people that i engage with talk about fight or flight some mm-hmm. will talk about fight flight and freeze now you added a fourth one into the mix that's very very rarely talked about um which is flock oh, do you want do you yeah. want to just talk a bit more about that for me yes i guess that's that's and, and flock i guess we see it in animals sometimes animals flocking together to, to, you know, sticking sticking together um but also was well, also a response someone's referred to as tend and befriend that some that some is how people sometimes respond to things so it's the kind of the the coming together and looking after okay uh, and so, yes, yeah, so that's 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 a fourth a, a fourth one. That kind of that's how some people might respond to change or to a threat. Is the kind of the coming together and and um, yeah, how we how we respond. Um, and there's some, inter- some interesting research that 
uh, about something about about um, dog shows. These best in show, these best in in, in show for for dogs. Yeah, yeah. And, and how people respond differently. There's some interesting research, some quite recent research, about how. Um, Dogs being put into these best in show competitions, and um, whether they, if, if they win and when they, if they lose, um, men and women can respond in different ways. That with ma- a man with, with high testosterone, with a dog that tends to lose, tends to pat the dog slightly less. Women, if their dog is lost, tend to pat the dog more. So that's, and I guess that's a bit of that tender befriend when we're in that same stress place of actually okay. paying more attention to the dog. Again, not to say whether one is right or wrong but just that, that slightly different um, response. So, and that would be that tender befriend response from, from women in terms of patting the dog more when it's, when it's lost. That'd be fab if you could, if, if you can get hold of that piece, the, the, you know, let, again, within the kind of references yes. or the yeah. reader, that'd be really interesting. And, that, to, and, to and that's, yeah, that, that one's def- that's in the new edition of books. I came across that quite recently. That's I, I, guess I can definitely share those with you. Yeah. That'd be great. Thank you. I'm looking back over my notes now that I've been taking this again. Is there anything else that I wanted to? Uh, is there anything else that I wanted to ask? I'll put a little asterisk next to things that I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." Um, oh, so you know, you talked about giving choice or giving people the chance to make their own kind of insight or conclusions, mm. and um, you know, you also rightly made the point that that's, don't do that under false pretenses. You know, if the decision's already been made, don't make it out as though people have got a choice when they actually haven't because if they find out that they haven't got a choice later on, they'll be even more frustrated than they, than they might have been before. Um, but I was curious about how do you do that in practice? So, you know, so if you're, you're, if you're working either when you're working with a client or if you're working with a client who, how, how do you kind of, what strategies do you use to give that choice or the chance to make their own um, insight or conclusions in the practice that you do? Yeah, well, I guess it's a mixture of things there because I guess sometimes it's about, okay, the decision might have been made, but there's a bit of a chance to give people more information so they can see how that decision made, look at some of that same information for themselves to understand how that decision was made rather than just saying, here is decision. So I think that's one side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in my experience, a lot of organisations, in their haste to get on with change, and I understand it, change has to be, people need to crack on, there's a hesitation and resistance to doing that um, because they know we've, we've got to get on with change, we haven't got time to do that. Um, but I tend to say to organisations, well, you've got a choice. Either you spend a bit of time up front with employees, giving them a chance to understand why option C is better than A or B and give them a chance to look at some of that information for themselves, or you go into this broadcast mode and tell them it's going to be option C, but then you will spend quite a bit of time afterwards mopping up afterwards, trying to persuade people, trying to take people with you. So I think it's about when do you spend the time and effort in terms of taking people with you. So I think that's one bit. Mm-hmm. On the second bit, the bit about giving people choice, my question to Lisa Madge is what, where can you let go? Where can you let people make decisions? And it can be quite small things can make a difference. Um, I've had a couple of people give me examples, pretty much the same example about um, relocating and employees being very unhappy about relocating and lots of moaning and groaning and and resistance trying to go to a, a different location. And in both cases, these people gave example of just taking in new chairs. It could be the new chairs in the new office. And in one case, certainly saying, which colour chair shall we have? You can all vote. Is it blue or green or whatever the choice was? Okay. And, and another case, be able to choose which kind of chair. And in both cases said, the moaning and groaning certainly diminished once people had that choice, chance to make that choice about chair. So 
quite small things, quite tiny things can make, make a difference. Or another example was I was working with an organization where jobs were going, they were closing down and, and the manager was saying, well, there's no choice we can give to people. This office is closing, the jobs are going, there's no, there's no room for choice. But again, we just said, well, is there other choices in terms of what, what people, what you chuck away and what people can keep as souvenirs? Uh, how you say goodbye to people? Uh, you know, how, how do you, there's, always, there's always somewhere you can say, over to you, how do you want to do this? And it's just really important where you can to let go. And so it can be quite small things, just feeling I've got a little bit of control over something makes a big difference to us so I think it's always that question where can you let go where can you pass that decision over to the employees fab wonderful thank you that was a really good example I like that um okay I think I think that's it that's that was all the questions that I had was there is there anything else that's coming to mind for you here anything else that you're thinking or feeling or would like to say I guess the only bit we haven't touched on, which is one, again, I, I, I do mm. think we hugely underestimate, is this bit about um, what deeply social creatures we are. I think to me that was, for me, when I was doing my neuroscience studies um, all years ago, I think that was the bit that really struck me. That again, we all kind of know it personally on one level, that relationships matter to us. But I do somehow think in organisations we don't allow for that. We expect people somehow to switch off that need for relationships, social connection as people walk in the workplace door. But we absolutely don't. We are deeply, deeply social creatures. And again, constantly subconsciously are checking out, do I fit in? Do I belong? Is my manager interested in me? Because if I do belong, if my manager is interested in me, my brain kind of goes, that's okay then. But if I don't feel I belong, we go into this threat state again. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and one of the things I guess it really brings at home, I think, that we think of, of, of physical pain and social pain as being two quite different things. Well, I feel I don't belong to the group as opposed to I've hurt my leg. We tend to think of them as being two quite separate kinds of pain. But to the brain, it's the same part of the brain processes both. Um, the brain does not distinguish in the same way that we do. Mm. Because to the, from the brain's point of view, both are essential in terms of survival. That you physically, you've hurt yourself, so don't keep running or whatever, or uh, the group is rejecting you. Um, therefore, that's also a threat to survival. And again, the reason why that's a threat to survival, because our brains still think they're on the savannah. If you're in the tribe, you're much more likely to make it. If the tribe throws you out, you're much less likely to make it. So, it's, so our brains are incredibly sensitive to do I fit in, do I belong? And um, again, I think it's one of the areas we've um, underestimated, but again, an area where I think we have a lot of control about the quality of our relationships at work. So I think, again, it's, it's, it's a really interesting area of neuroscience, but it's also an area where we can, we, we can do a lot about that too. Yeah, and I, I definitely think, uh, so, uh, sorry, three, two things, two things, I think. So one, um, I, I really like to, you know, if you, again, if you could give us a reference for the pain processing bit, that'd, yeah, be, that'd be really good. Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, kind of the need for social connection stuff. Um, again, for me, there's a real overlap between um, dif different disciplines here. You know, so I, I get, I'm really fascinated by the, the way the way and ways that identity and relationships are negotiated in the workplace, both between 
uh, and I think there's a relationship between both the employee and the organization because the organization is an entity in its own right so and there is a there is a relationship that happens there and then there are the relationships that that happen with all of the individuals within it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know and I, I get quite interested where where it, where individuals is individuals the right word where people that are engaging in interaction so for my sociology background I'd call them interlocutors um, which is the kind of the linguist view of people that are involved in a com- in a conversation um, how they distinguish and delineate between those two different things so that how they can be uh, talking about one relationship that they might have with the organization and then at the same time there is an there is an individual who is both representing the organization but is also an individual in their own right so there's an interlocutor who is both representing the organization and they're an individual in their own right so if i think about organizational change when uh, if we go back if i use your broadcast mode example so a, a senior leader um may be in broadcast mode and uh, other other inter- other individuals or interlocutors are able to distinguish between that person as a person in their own right and the and the the message they need to deliver as a representative of the company mm. um, and how those those different relationships are dynamic in that way. Um, I get really interested in that. Yeah, so and I think that to me that raises really important. That I think that dilemma managers often often you know, I feel for managers when we're going through change. Those people are kind of caught in the middle of they're not necessarily ones making the decisions about change, but they've got to represent those changes to the to the team. Yeah whether they agree or don't agree with, and that difficult position I think a lot of managers are put in. Um, yeah, to try to represent the organisation, yet they as an individual, yeah, might feel slightly differently about yeah what's happening. So I think that that yeah. That dilemma yeah. they face. I think it's a really interesting area. Okay, um, so remind me then, um, your book. So the, the latest edition of your book is out already, right? Shortly. It, it, it's, it's out in it's out in the UK and Europe now. Yeah. So neuroscience for organisational change, second edition is, is is just out now. It's going to be out in in the US at the end of the month. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and are there any other um, kind of resources like books or videos or um, TED Talks or are there any other things that are kind of top of your top of your list of go to places if somebody wanted to go and find out some more? Um, there are lots of good books out there. Um, uh, uh, I guess, yeah, my book is about neuroscience and organizational change to anybody going through change or anybody in leadership i think mine is useful for then if you want to dig down into certain areas um matt lieberman is one of the neuroscientists who's really good on the whole social brain that i'll give you the connection for him in terms of a pain Thank and you. the social brain um people like david eagleman's another neuroscientist that writes very well um if people are really keen for the um the uh, academic articles google scholar is fantastic i mean most um, bits of research are now available for free on Google Scholar. So, so for me, when writing the book, Google Scholar and my neuroscientists are the other go-to places. Yeah, I agree. Google Scholar is a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's an extraordinary resource. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Fab. In that case, then I think I'll bring it together and wrap us up. Unless there's anything else that you've got to add, anything else that you're thinking, feeling, or want to say? No, I think we've covered quite a lot. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. It's been really good. Thank you so much for your time today, Hilary. I've really enjoyed having you uh, on the Emotional World podcast. And thank you so much for taking part. Pleasure. It's been, it's been a real pleasure for me too. So thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Emotional Work podcast, written, edited, and presented by Phil Wilcox. 
For more information, why not visit our website, emotionatwork.co.uk. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not join the community at community.emotionatwork.co.uk where you find other resources such as videos, blogs, articles, research, plus all the previous podcasts. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks for listening.